Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Brosnan. She is a professor in the departments of psychology and philosophy and the Neuroscience Institute at Georgia State University. She is also a member of the Brains and Behavior Program and the Center for Behavioral Neuroscience. She directs the Comparative Economics and Behavioral Studies Laboratory and does research with non-human primates at both the Language Research Center of Georgia State University and the Michael E. Keeling Center for Comparative Medicine and Research of the University of Texas Anderson Cancer Center. Okay, so Dr. Brosnan, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Absolutely, it's great to be here. Okay, great. So, first of all, let me ask you, because people who do research on non-human primates, I mean, there are a lot of aspects of their behavior, and we are also primates that people can study. So, what? first of all, what are the primate species you focus your work the most on? And also, what are the aspects of behavior that you're most interested in? Sure. So most of my research over the last 20 years has been on capuchin monkeys, which are a small new world primate, meaning they live in South and Central America, um, and chimpanzees. Um, I also do quite a lot of work on squirrel monkeys, rhesus monkeys, orangutans, gorillas. I've worked on marmosets and of course humans. Um, But the focus has really been on capuchins and chimpanzees in part because they are both highly cooperative. And what I am interested in studying is the decision-making underlying cooperation. So how do individuals decide with whom to cooperate, in what context to cooperate, when to cooperating with somebody and go find a new partner and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, and would you agree that one of the biggest parts of your research has to do with morality and moral behavior? Yeah, so as part of my interest in cooperation, I became very interested in responses to inequity. Um, So inequity is reacting when you get something different from a partner, usually assumed as you get something less good than a partner. Um, And I did this research quite some time back. But of course, inequity is a component of cooperation. It's long been hypothesized that one of the reasons we have a sense of inequity is that it allows us to determine the value of a cooperative partner. So if you and I are working together and you consistently get more of the rewards than I do, then it's probably time for me to go find somebody else to work with. Um, But of course, That sort of response also underlies the human sense of fairness, which is a key component of morality. So although I didn't start out originally to study morality, my work has quite a lot to say about it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I guess that people, particularly the ones who are not really scientifically minded, when they think about morality, they think of the things that society teaches children or the the parents teach children or the priests or something like that. But what is really morality from, let's say, a biological perspective? Yeah, so I think at Art, morality is about um, having the social regularities that you need to function as part of a group. Um, So if you use that definition, there are aspects of morality that are present in lots of different species. But of course, that's not what humans, what we mean by it when we're talking about human society. But what I'm interested in is how it evolves. So it starts out as this mechanism for social regularity. Then you layer on top of it things like the importance of reciprocating, um, the importance of cooperating, 
the um, noticing when you're getting less than a partner and then ultimately noticing when you're getting more than a partner and trying to rectify that. And eventually you have this system of moral behavior. And then humans have taken that and really jumped a step further with it. Um, I think in large part because we have language and the advanced cognitive ability, we can take these basic foundations and we can expand them. We can think about the future. We can plan for 10 years in the future. We have a really advanced theory of mind, so we can understand how our actions are influencing another individual or how they might be interpreted by another individual. So that has allowed us to develop this sort of what I call the full-blown sense of morality. That's what you're talking about. It's what you learn about when you're, you know, your religious training, your school training, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, okay. And when you're doing comparative psychology, and particularly when you're comparing a particular type of behavior uh, between humans and non-human primates, isn't it the case that we have to really be careful about the types of primate species that we choose when comparing different types of behavior? Yes, but probably not in the way you might think. I mean, commonly people assume we should be looking at the great apes because the great apes are the most closely related to us. Technically, we're great apes too. Um, I actually think it's important to take a really broad perspective because we really need to understand not just how phylogeny influences our behavior. So phylogeny meaning the, the, the most closely related in, um, species, but also how ecology could be influencing it. So you learn different things from studying different species. So for instance, I study highly cooperative species. Presumably this tells us about the context in which cooperation is most common, but you should also study species that aren't known to be cooperative. So for instance, I study pearl monkeys. They're closely related to capuchins. They're sympatric. They share an ecological niche with capuchins. You know, obviously there are differences, but they largely overlap. Um, they have a similar body plan. They live in large social groups. They're good at cognitive tasks, but they don't seem to cooperate. And so that's very interesting for me is trying to figure out why capuchins are and squirrel monkeys aren't. And are there contexts in which squirrel monkeys do cooperate? Maybe we're just missing it in the wild. Um, or maybe we're not looking for the right thing. So I actually find the really broad comparative approach to be the most effective because it allows you to get all these different aspects of it and try and tie it together into a whole. Mm -hmm. And would you say that for a particular species, and I'm not simply referring to primates here, but to all animal species in general, for, for them to have some sort of morality, that they have to have at least some uh, minimum requirements in terms of the uh, cognitive ingredients, let's say, that they have to have in order to have uh, moral behavior? It depends on what level you're talking about moral behavior, I think. If you're just talking about a system of social regularity, you probably don't need much. Um, you might need individual recognition um, so that you know who are who is your social group and who should you be interacting with. But that's widespread. Um, it used to be thought that that was sort of a higher order cognitive thing, but we see it in insects, um, which means that in principle, insects should be able to do that as well. But as you add certain components, I think you do need cognitive ability. You do need more advanced cognitive abilities. For instance, you can't have any form of calculated reciprocity where you're remembering specifically, you did this for me, so I owe you that in return, unless you have an ability to keep track of what you've done and what others have done. You ha I have to be able to recognize you. I have to be able to uh, remember that I need to reciprocate and so forth. Um, likewise, I mentioned that there's sort of two types of inequities. So we talked about disadvantageous inequity, which 
I don't like it when I got less than you. And advantageous inequity, which is when I noticed more than you. Well, this advantageous inequity, I suspect, is really an emotional reaction, frustration response. I'm getting less than you. I don't like that. So therefore, I react. And I anticipate that that would be widespread throughout the animal kingdom with any species that routinely cooperates with the same individuals and needs to recognize when they need to find a new partner. On the other hand, advantageous inequity responses in principle could be the same thing, but I suspect might require a bit more cognition. And particularly with humans, the fact that we can verbalize this and understand, ooh, I'm getting more than you and that's great right now, but sooner or later you're going to get irritated and go away and I'm going to lose a valuable cooperative partner. What can I do to rectify that? Um, so that requires quite a bit of both understanding about the other individual's needs and wants and also trying to figure out how my behavior is going to influence yours in particular. So you need planning and, and you need self-control and delay of gratification so you don't just take what you've got and hang on to it even though you know in the long run it's not going to benefit you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even when it comes to other life forms, for example, at the level of bacteria and microorganisms, I mean, probably we should not call it uh, morality. But isn't it also the case that they also interact and have some processes that we could also call competitive or, or conflict uh, 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 processes that are competitive or conflictive? Absolutely. Like yeah. So, for instance, one of the best examples of altruism is the dictostelium. Um, so they are uh, social amoeba that form these stalks. So it's little individual single cell organisms who crawl around on the forest floor. When conditions get bad, they form these stalks with a fruiting body on top and the fruiting body can latch onto a passing animal and then move to another area that's hopefully better. But it's altruistic because the cells that go into the stalk don't get to move. So they're going to die. Um, and they're not always related to the individuals in the fruiting body. So that's John Strassman and David Feller's work. And it shows absolutely that you can get the same functional cooperation or maybe even more so in a single-celled organism. I mean, obviously it doesn't have a central nervous system. So, <laughs> so I think it's important not to be too careful, not to, um, it's important to be careful not to overassume, to assume that you need these complex cognitive abilities when in fact you may, you may well not. Mm -hmm. Well, well, we probably don't get bacteria priests or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway. Okay, and what would you say are some of the main functions of morality? Is it primarily for conflict resolution or to regulate social relationships or even to promote uh, group cohesion or, or what exactly? So I think morality functions for all of these things. So living in social groups obviously is beneficial. We do it. But of course, it has costs as well. So if you're living in a social group, you get the benefits of protection. It's easier to find mates. There are certain food sources you can only or you can more easily get if you're living in a group and so forth. It allows for cooperation. But if you're if there are lots of individuals around, it also means you're competing for mates and you're competing for food sources and you're competing for the best spot in the group. And so Anything that can um, that can amplify the advantages while minimizing the disadvantages of living in a group can be selected for. And I think that probably at, at the most basic level, the system of moral behavior is about uh, magnifying those advantages by minimizing the conflict between individuals. 
So setting up these social regularities or these rules about how things are done. I mean, even a dominance hierarchy can benefit everyone if it means that you're not fighting every day in order to figure out who's on top and who gets access to that food source. Minimizes the amount of aggression in the group, which is good for every single individual who's not having a fight. Um, even a dominant individual can get injured in a fight. And without, you know, they don't have a primary care physician who can prescribe antibiotics. So, <laughs> so it can be potentially deadly. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about group cohesion, aren't we invoking at least to some extent group selection? Because that's a bit of a contentious topic in biology, particularly, right? If we really have, uh, if we really have selection operating at the level of the group or not, correct? Yeah. So group selection is highly contentious and has been for decades. So. I have a couple of answers for that. First of all, I think at the level of humans, it's become quite a bit less contentious. There seems to be some level of group selection, especially at the cultural level. So you've got Rob Boyd and Pete Richardson and Joe Hendricks work showing and others um, showing that there really is cultural group selection. And the big thing is that humans meet a lot of the criteria that makes group selection beneficial. You have to have discrete groups, you have to have some interaction between groups, you can't have too much flow between groups and so forth, and we meet those criteria. Um, I think in principle, there's no reason why we couldn't see it in other species. It's just that it's been very difficult to find groups in which those specific criteria are met. Um, And maybe the criteria are wrong, but in other contexts, we can usually explain a lot of the benefits from an individual perspective. So for instance, obviously it benefits the group if everyone's getting along because that group should be stronger against other groups, but it also benefits every individual. It benefits me if I'm not having to fight with you every day. It benefits me if when I go to defend my group territory or my group boundaries, you're there beside me. So I'm not the only one who's up there doing it. And so part of it is we can explain it from an individual selection perspective, and the bias has been to focus on it at that level rather than thinking about it from the group level. Mm-hmm. And when we're thinking about the individual level, we're talking about processes like reciprocal altruism, right? As was proposed first by Robert Rivers, correct? Yes. Um, and reciprocal altruism. <laughs> Reciprocal altruism is another one that's potentially contentious and that it's really difficult to find good evidence of it in the field. Um, In particular, it's been really difficult to find much evidence of altruism in the I pay a cost to benefit you sense. We see lots of low cost reciprocity. And by low cost, I don't mean no cost, but like grooming or food sharing at a very small level or coalitionary support and so forth. There are costs, but they're not enormous costs. Um, the, the Really, the biggest problem, though, has been that it's been difficult to find unequivocal instances where there is this calculation. But we do see a lot of reciprocal behavior. Um, so, for instance, um, Christoph Bosch's work with his colleague Gomez has demonstrated you get huge amounts of reciprocity over time. When we look in these studies in the lab on the very short scale, we don't see reciprocity. But how much of that is because we haven't designed a study that the chimpanzees understand? I mean, more and more we're finding evidence of, behavior, of pro-social behavior and reciprocity when you tweak the study in ways that it appears the chimps understand it better. Maybe they just didn't know what we expected. Maybe they didn't see it as a reciprocal task. Maybe they don't reciprocate over very short time frames. I mean, there's a big difference between over the next three weeks, we groom each other roughly equivalently. And over the next five minutes, I groom you for a minute and then you groom me for a minute. Um, But when we look at an experimental studies, we're expecting that latter context because that's the time course over which we define the experiment. 
Um, which isn't to say we shouldn't be doing the experiments. We need the experiments to help us understand the mechanisms under, underlying the behavior we see in the field. But I think we could do a better job at looking at the natural context when we see reciprocity and using that to help us better, under, better inform how we design our experiments, find it in captivity. Mm -hmm. Right. And isn't it also a contentious topic, I mean, the topic of altruism in species? Because, I mean, perhaps ever since Darwin, it has been a bit difficult to explain particularly how would processes of natural selection would favor altruistic behavior when it is directed at particularly individuals who we are not genetically related to. Right. Right. And that's been, the, that was one of the, uh, of course, Hamilton talked about kin selection. And of course, that was Bob Trevor's big advancement is, well, it is a benefit if I benefit you and then get something back in the long term. So in the short term, yes, it may have cost, but over the long term, it benefits me. It also depends on how you define altruism. Um, so as a biologist, I tend to see altruism as a behavior that benefits another individual. But from a psychological perspective, it requires intentionality and it requires True, pure altruism is supposed to be, I benefit you and get nothing in return. So that's the anonymous donation. Nobody ever knows who it was. And I don't think that's very common. It's not common in humans. It's not common in other species. Um, and it is hard to explain why that would evolve. Um, but it's not hard at all to explain why benefiting other individuals could evolve. Because either you get something back in return or it increases your reputation that indirectly gives you something back in return and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk now about some very specific topics, and let's start with inequity aversion, because we've, you've done uh, some work on this. So what are the species that you've studied that exhibit inequity aversion, and uh, does inequity aversion uh, have some sort of, or show us that other primates have some sort of sense of fairness, as we do? Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a big question. <laughs> so it sort of breaks down into a couple of different topics. Um, right. I've studied um, inequity aversion now in, I think, eight or nine different primate species. And of course, others have studied it in primates, in rats, in mice, in um, dogs and wolves, in several different species of birds and fish. So there, there have been a lot of studies on inequity aversion. Um, when I first started out, we saw it in chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys and then started looking further and found that we weren't seeing it in every species. So for instance, we didn't see it in orangutans, we didn't see it in squirrel monkeys. And at this point, there were a couple of hypotheses for how it should be distributed. One possibility was that it was just a, a homology among the primates, meaning that our common ancestor responded negatively to getting less than a partner, um, and therefore all or most primates are doing the same. It's clear now that that's not the case. There are too many primates that aren't showing a response in this task. It's also not a homology in the great apes. Um, the other possibility was that it had something to do with cognition. If you're smart enough, you respond negatively to an X. Um, and so for that, you can look at brain size or brain to body ratio as a sort of rough proxy. Um, but that doesn't match up perfectly well either because orangutans aren't responding to inequity and yet orangutans have very large brain to body ratios and do extremely well on cognitive tasks. Um, it also doesn't seem to be related to just social group size. Um, the squirrel monkeys were not responding to inequity, and we've tested a lot of squirrel monkeys at this point. Um, but they live in very large social groups. And the orangutans that we tested were tested at the zoo. 
but they were socially housed. So even though orangutans can be less social than some of the other great apes in the wild, I mean, they certainly can come together in very large groups, but they tend to spend more time alone. Um, in the zoo, that's not true. And so they had plenty of social experience. And right now, what seems to be the best correlation is that species where there's a lot of cooperation between non-kin um, tend to be the ones that respond the most strongly to inequity. So capuchins, chimpanzees, um, humans, some of the macaque species. Macaques, you don't think of as being nice, but they do cooperate quite a lot. Um, they form lots of coalitions and alliances. Um, there's only been one study on bonobos thus far, and it was equivocal because there was a small sample size, but they did respond twice as often. They did refuse twice as often in the inequity as compared to the indicating that future studies might find something there. Um, there is an odd um, exception to that with the cooperative breeders. So these are species where the male and the female work together to raise offspring, and that's actually biparental care and through cooperative breeding. Also, the um, the older offspring are participating in the care. And so we've tested now in owl monkeys um, and in marmosets, and Julie Nyworth's group did it in tamarins. We don't see much evidence of inequity responses in any of those. Aaron Musto's group with Jeff French has found a little bit of evidence for inequity aversion in some contexts in uh, marmosets. Um, but one possibility for that is that these guys are heavily interdependent. So they aren't just cooperating. They're actually, they're, they're, their future reproductive fitness is entirely uh, dependent on their partner. So it may be that responding negatively to something as silly as a cucumber versus a grape just isn't worth it. So we might see much more, much stronger inequity responses when you look at group formation than we see after the groups are together. And at least in the case of our studies, we were testing individuals who are already paired together and then often had offspring. So it makes sense that they may have just been too invested. Um, I think that's something that actually deserves more work. It fits in nicely with the cooperative breeding hypothesis, um, but it would be interesting to see if what context there are when they do respond. Um, your second question was how that fit in um, to fairness. Mm -hmm. And so considering inequity and fairness, the, the negative response to inequity is a component of fairness, but it's not the same thing as a sense of fairness. So when we talk about fairness in humans, we mean a social ideal. So this idea for how the world should work, I think things should be just equal between different groups, whether or not I'm involved in the interaction. At least in principle, I think that I shouldn't be getting more than others. Most people definitely believe that, although Dave's studies show that we aren't necessarily, we don't necessarily act that way. <laughs> but we are willing to work for causes that we don't necessarily directly benefit from, um, and we think they're important. And so that that sort of social ideal sense of fairness is going to be hard to find in another species, in part because I think to some degree you need language to set up these ideals, and in part because we can't go ask the other species what they think. Um, but we can put them in situations where they are getting more or less than partners. So um, and lots of these species, like I said, including dogs and wolves and corvids and so forth, rats, um, individuals are responding negatively when they get less than a partner. But we don't have as much evidence of individuals responding negatively when they get more than a partner. Right now, the best evidence for that comes from one group, one chimpanzee study we did, where we looked at how chimps responded when both they and their partner got a grape versus, which is the high value reward. Um, versus when um, they got a grape, but their partner got the less valuable cucumber. And what you find is that subjects are more likely to refuse their grape when the partner gets the cucumber than when they both get the grape, indicating that they at least notice this inequity. Um, however, I should point out that the refusal rate 
um, the refusal rate goes up by a factor of four when you go from refusing because you got more than your partner to refusing because you got less than your partner. So they're clearly more upset by getting less than getting more. Um, nonetheless, this is a step in the direction of having this more balanced sense of fairness that we would consider to be more of a true sense of fairness. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. And so uh, I've already asked this question to several different people, particularly evolutionary psychologists, but I would like to know uh, when it comes to emotions and since you do work in terms of phylogeny and evolutionary processes, do you approach emotions as cognitive tools that we have evolved to solve certain specific uh, evolutionarily relevant problems, particularly in the domain of social interaction and things like that. Yeah, I mean, with the caveat that emotions aren't my specialty, I mean, I'm enough of an academic that I have to throw that caveat out there. Um, I imagine that emotions are widespread throughout the animal kingdom. To me, they seem to be an extremely effective mechanism for helping individuals make decisions, recognize a good social partner from a bad social partner and so forth. So I think that while it is certainly possible to, you know, to use the scientific term to think about your inequity responses, I think most of the responses we're seeing are really emotional responses. They're frustrated, they're irritated, they're angry. You know, I don't know exactly what they're going through, but uh, there's a famous video clip online where you can see a capuchin monkey getting really irritated and throwing away their cucumber when the partner gets a grape. That monkey certainly looks angry. Um, you know, we need to do some more research to determine whether or not there are changes in hormone levels and, you know, sympathetic nervous system responses and so forth. But I think it is a very reasonable starting hypothesis that what these guys are showing is an emotional reaction. Um, that maybe certainly in humans, we can think about that emotional reaction and we can layer cognitive things on top of it. Um, but mm-hmm. it seems to be pretty obvious that, they, that other species also have emotions. Mm-hmm. And when you, we are comparing humans to other primate species, particularly, uh, so we have on the one hand phylogeny, that is the evolutionary processes that happen during our evolutionary history and that include other species as well, but we also have, in terms of development, what we call ontogeny, right? And so uh, there's this theory that we call theory of recapitulation that was put for first by, I think, Ernst Eckel, who said something like, yeah, yeah, who said something like ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. So, do you agree with that? That we have a, a kind of a cognitive developmental stages in human infants that really resemble what we get in terms of phylogeny, let's say. Not really. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, certainly at the basic level, yes. I mean, there's, you know, you see aspects of theory of mind as kids grow and other species are going to show some of those levels as well. But what I, so so yes, at a, at a very general level. What I think that leaves out though is that species develop cognitive skills, or, excuse me, species evolve the cognitive skills they need to do well in their environment. So for instance, Chimpanzees have better spatial memory skills than humans do, probably because they live in a much more three-dimensional environment. They're swinging through trees, we're walking on the ground. And so it, one of the things I don't like about that hypothesis is, it, it, yes, it's probably trivially true, but it ignores all this impa- input from the ecology and from different social structures and all these things, and they all tie together in shaping what sorts of abilities and 
have. So it's not just true that a chimpanzee is a more advanced ape or more advanced monkey and a human is a more advanced chimpanzee. Um, there's a lot more variability there. Mm-hmm. And does it come to uh, how we look at uh, development from a biological perspective? Because I think that until a few decades ago, there was really an intense debate in biology between the people that were too focused perhaps on uh, natural selection and adaptations and the ones who really put more uh, some emphasis at least in in developmental processes and things like that, right? Yes. Could uh, sorry. Could you repeat the question to make sure I answer what you want? <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. So my question is that perhaps in biology there is one aspect this, that sometimes gets a bit neglected. That is that we also have to look into developmental processes and not only the things that directly result from natural selection and those kinds of processes, right? Yeah, I think really if you truly want to understand a behavior, I mean, you know, we've got Tinbergen's four questions, right? Tinbergen's four <laughs> questions help us look at it from the uh, from the um, mechanistic perspective and also from the ultimate How does a behavior develop? What makes it function? What was its evolutionary history? What is, um, what is its behavioral function as well as what are the mechanisms underpinning it? Um, and I think that it's too easy to get focused on one or the other of these. But if you really want, want to understand a behavior, you need to understand why it evolved. But you also need to understand its development. Um, you need to understand the underlying mechanisms. Maybe in one species, it's maybe you've got different mechanisms for the same behavior. We find that. Um, and also, you have to take into account the ecology in which the organism evolved, um, because that can. I think that is, for some people, an underappreciated uh, driver of these different species. Mm-hmm. And in your work, you do a lot of economic games to explore mm-hmm. the behaviors that other species exhibit in this case. Uh, what would you say are the types of information that we can get from uh, economic games that probably we couldn't get from other approaches to animal behavior? Yeah, so the economic games are great because they allow for a very close comparison across multiple different species. So one of the joys of the economic games is they take really complex decision situations and they distill them down to some very simple and basic. It's usually just a two-choice task. Cooperate, do you defect, do you play stag, do you play hare, and so forth. And of course, that's unrealistic. They've been stripped down of all the context around them, but that's really the I see them as a sort of model system that you can use to look across multiple different species. And and that's important because especially when you're talking about different species, you've got differences in body plan, and you've got differences in sensory and perception systems and so forth that mean that if you can get something simple enough, you actually can look across these species and make these close comparisons. Then what you need to do is once you have this comparative approach using econ games, try and you use that to hypothesize about what the similarities and differences among the species are. And then you can go back and you can use those hypotheses to direct your behavior in more species-specific uh, approaches. So go back and do a bar pole task if you're talking about a capuchin monkey. You're not going to do that with a fish, obviously, because they don't have hands. Um, but And this is a very long-term project. It's not something you're going to do in a dissertation. 
But the econ, the joy of the econ games is they give you the ability to be, have very tightly controlled comparisons, both across studies and across contexts. So you can use exactly the same paradigm and tweak the reward payoffs, coordination and anti-coordination and cooperation with effect and whether or not you're willing to play fair and so forth. Um, so that makes them extremely powerful. Okay, so another part of your work that I found very interesting is the one that is related to the endowment effect, <laughs> particularly in non-human primates, because this also links to a sense of property and things like that. But first of all, before I ask further questions, could you explain what is the endowment effect? Sure. So the endowment effect is this bias related to property where individuals value something that they've got more than they did before they had it. And specifically, they value it more just because of the very act of possession, not because it's gained more value or not because of sentimental value or not even, I mean, and we know in behavioral ecology that individuals who have a territory will fight harder to and others will fight to come in for it. Well, it makes sense because the more territory is more valuable to me once I know where the good feeding spots are and where the predators hide and so forth. Um, but in this context, it's just bias for ownership. So the classic study was by uh, Jack Netch, and they would give one class a, a chocolate bar and allow them to exchange for a coffee mug, and he would give another uh, class a coffee mug and allow them to exchange for a coffee bar, and he gave one class a choice between the two. And what you see is that people are more likely to keep whatever they were given, the chocolate bar or the coffee mug, than you would expect based on the distribution of choices in the third class. So people have to hang on to what they have and not want to create it. And this is, this is quirky in the sense that if people are completely rational and focused only on cost and benefits, then they shouldn't do this. You should trade what you've got for the thing you like better. Um, it's also actually pretty important from the perspective that a lot of, at least in the U.S., and I'm assuming elsewhere, I don't know property law in Europe very well, um, but at least in the U.S., a lot of our property law is, um, is set up with the assumption that it doesn't matter where a resource starts, that it will end up with the person who values it the most. But if people change their valuation depending on whether or not it's been assigned to them, then that's not true. So you can end up with inefficient markets because people are using this bias and so you can't make that assumption that it'll just end up with the person who values it most. Mm -hmm. And uh, what are the sorts of things or objects that other animals that you've studied get attached to and where we really get the endowment effect? Right. So the original study by Jack Netch, they used a food item and a non-food item. So when we replicated it the first time, I mean, primates value food items more than they value non-food items. So we used two different food items that we tried to get something that were relatively equal. So we used treats. So we used frozen fruit juice or a little bit of peanut butter in a tube. Um, they can use a stick and dig peanut butter out of the tube. They love it. Um, so we did the food items on the one hand. And on the other hand, we did toys. So they get lots of toys that they can play with. It's the same sorts of things you would give a dog or a cat. You want them to have something to give them, keep them active and give them something to do. Um, so they like toys. And what we found was that they showed a strong endowment effect for foods. They were much more likely to hang on to what they got than they were to trade, than they, um, than they were to, uh, than you would expect based on their preference for the two if you gave them a free choice. We did this as a, as a within subject study. So we were actually able to look at each individual's preference for one versus the other then which one they held on to in both conditions. And most of them held on to whatever item you gave them. 
even though they uh, obviously had a preference for one over the other. And it wasn't just that they were disinterested in trading. So if you gave them something that was quite a bit better, they would happily trade out whatever you gave them for the thing better. Um, so it wasn't just that they're afraid to trade or they think they aren't going to get, they don't trust the human to give them something in return. Um, but we found no endowment effect with the toys. Actually, what we found with the toys was that they really just like to play with humans and they were happily to tra happy to trade out whatever we gave them for the other thing, <laughs> even though they had a preference. So one of our hypotheses was that what was going on, and I did this work with Owen Jones at Vanderbilt, one of our hypotheses was that this was due to the fact that the foods were really salient to them and the toys weren't. So they didn't really care about the toys in the sense that they weren't evolutionarily salient. So we did another version of the study where we used two different tools that could be used to acquire food, but the tools couldn't be used for the other tasks. So one was um, a sort of dipping sponge that they could use to soak up juice, and one was a stick they could use to scoop out honey or peanut butter or oatmeal, um, which they like to scoop out and eat. But you couldn't use the sponge to get to the um, to get to the dipping task, and you couldn't use the dipping stick. And we ran the study, we gave them, we ran the study where you would either give them a choice between the two or you would give them one and let them trade for another in three contexts. Either both the, um, we used oatmeal actually, either both the oatmeal and the juice present and available or the oatmeal and the juice were absent. So this was a control and we did a control for the presence when you couldn't reach it. So the oatmeal and the juice were in the room, they could see them. But they couldn't see them. And what we found was that they showed a strong endowment effect for the tools when the oatmeal was and those juice were immediately available. But when they were simply present but not available or when they were absent altogether, they didn't show any endowment effect at all. So it was clear that they don't care about the tools unless they can use the tools, which ties into this argument that when something's useful for acquiring food, then they change their valuation of it compared to when it's not immediately useful for acquiring food. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. So I've already asked you about fairness, but sure. with all of that in mind, uh, is it possible for us to say that other non-human animals also have a sense of property or not? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, they certainly have a sense of property if by property what you mean is possession. So several other species have a, what I would call possessions that's nine-tenths of the law rule. So what I've got in my hand is mine. Not all primates do. So for instance, macaques tend to not have, a, um, not have rights of first possession. Um, dominance will come take food from subordinates. But capuchin monkeys and chimpanzees I've seen subordinate chimpanzees, you know, juvenile chimpanzees who get a hold of some food item that they really like, and they're sitting there trying to eat it, and the dominants are sitting there staring at them um, because they, you know, they would like it, but they won't just reach in and take it. Um, eventually, the juvenile will probably pick it up. Um, so, in that sense, we do have a sense of property. We've done work with chimps looking at exchange, and the chimpanzees seem to understand that some things can be yours and some things can be mine. We've got this. Um, we've got this property level bias where they're showing uh, they're showing a bias towards hanging on to whatever they've got. One of the interesting things is in all of these cases, um, it seems to be based on what I have access to. So there have been, there were a series of studies 15, 20 years ago looking at possession, and um, generally speaking, for primate possession is when I have something in my grasp. So you know, this coffee mug is now mine, but if I put it down, then it can be yours and I wouldn't do anything about it. Um, one interesting exception was Hamadryas baboons, who seem to have a sense of property 
extended slightly outside of them, which is interesting because they're harem species, so it may be related to their ecology. Um, so I would argue that that most of the other species have, if they have a sense of property, it's based on possession norms, and that it's probably due to the fact that they don't have the ability to go for third-party intervention. So if I come home and you have stolen my grill off my back deck, um, I can call the police, and if we find it, I can use the power of the state to get my grill back. If I'm a chimpanzee, I don't have that option. I can't prove it's mine. I can't go ask for help because they don't have language that allows them to communicate outside of the here and now. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference, um, which probably limits property in the legal sense of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just one last topic, and I guess this is a big one because we've already talked about comparative psychology and how and the best ways to compare the behavior of non-human animals or primates in this case with humans, and also then when we talked about morality, uh, you referred to certain uh, human psychological slash cognitive mechanisms that we have that are more developed than in other species, like, for example, the theory of mind and the ability to think about the future and plan far ahead and things like that. So when it comes to psychological mechanisms that are related to social interaction and morality, uh, do they vary in terms of a kind or degree or both when comparing humans to non-human primates in this case? Yeah, my take is that there are almost everything that we talk about, there are differences in degree, differences in quality, uh, different quantitative differences. Let me start that sentence again. <laughs> <laughs> my so my take is that for virtually everything, there are differences in degree, but not in kind between humans and other species. So for instance, planning for the future. Humans plan quite well. We're not perfect at it, as evidenced by the fact that we need to be told to save for retirement. Um, but humans can plan for the future. Other species can too. So there are lots of studies showing that chimpanzees and other species will remember to hang on to tools that they use need in another place. Um, there's a great study about a chimp in a zoo in Sweden who is will hoard rocks and use them to throw at zoo visitors who may have a great reaction when you throw things at them. Um, and so clearly these individuals are able to plan for the future in a way that seems to imply that they're actually thinking it through. Um, maybe they can't plan over as long of a term and maybe they plan in fewer contexts, but they can plan. Theory of mind, the same sort of thing. Humans have very advanced theory of mind, but there is, in my opinion, pretty good evidence that other primates have the ability to take perspective, take perspective of others in at least some context, and that they probably are able, they have probably very, at least some basic theory of mind. Again, not as complex as ours, but they have it there. And I think in most of these contexts, what we can see is where our sense came from, which not only helps us understand how our eyes developed or evolved, but also helps us understand the context under which it's important and what context may change it. Maybe we're better at planning in some situations than others, and looking at other species may help tell us that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just one last question, and this is somewhat of a joke, but anyway, I've read a couple of studies where people put uh, chimpanzees through the ultimatum game, they played the ultimatum game, and they arrived at the conclusion that chimps are much more homo economicus than humans are really. So, <laughs> with this in mind, do you think that perhaps at least when it comes to 
to economic decisions that perhaps we should have chimpanzees as politicians or not? <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know about that. I think chimps' decisions are just as driven by uh, emotion as humans are, and that's not necessarily a bad thing all the time. Um, you do see them make different decisions, although while they never refuse, neither do kids in the same situation, but they do change their behavior. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think human, I mean, there's maybe another situation where it's a difference of degree. Maybe the chimps are a bit more rational than us, but I, I'm not sure I'd want them in charge either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So let's end on that note. And just before we go, Dr. Brosnan, would you like to tell people perhaps what would be some of the best online resources if they want to get in touch with more of your work? Yeah, I've got a website, um, sarah-brosnan.com, and that has links to my papers and also some video clips, including a very nice one of Franz de Waal's uh, TED Talk, which includes the monkey throwing the cucumber out. Um, and you can also get in touch with me if you have further questions. Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of your work and that things that you just referred to in the description box of the video. And Dr. Brosnan, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to be here with us today. It was really a fun conversation. So I enjoyed it quite a bit. Thank you. Hi everybody, thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, if you don't like Patreon, you can also go to PayPal or Subscribestar. All of the links are in the description box of the video and also on my channel. Uh, and apart from that, you can also, of course, leave a like, share the interview and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larson, La Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, and my first producer, Isar Webe. Thank you for all.